Hey there, Intrepid Bike Shed listener. We've been nominated for the Best Dev Podcast in the first annual Hacker Noon Noonies Award. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you could cast a vote for us to let the world know you care. We've made a nice short URL for you to follow so you can find the voting page at tbot.io slash noonies. That's T-B-O-T dot I-O slash noonies, N-O-O-N-I-E-S. And we'll include a link in the show notes. Thanks. Tom, this is nonsense time, but we were we were being nonsensical and we thought, you know what? Tom might love this nonsense. So here we, we are. say something good. In case, just in case, I oh, would hate to miss something good because the rest <laughs> of it's usually just garbage. <laughs> it's just useless. Uh, it's useless tech talk. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Steph. And I'm Chris. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot, hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So what's new with you, Chris? Our client has a giant, they have a set of these giant monitors in their office. They're the big, huge, ultra-wide ones, and they're curved, and I don't like them. And that's my summary. (laughs) And you like them, and I want to talk about that. Yes, I'm, I'm laughing because it amuses me how strong of an opinion that you have. It on amuses these me monitors. too. I don't know why I am the way that I am, but here I am. So let's first unpack that. Why? Why do you hate them? I don't hate them, but I find them to be they're too. I have to move my head when I'm using the monitor. I want to just be able to move my eyes and bounce to the corners of the screen and do window manager things if I need more information. But like the information density is too high. I think we're lying to ourselves if we think we can look at that many pixels and get stuff out of it. So you have something that probably helps you where you can snap different screens like to the far left and to the far right and do like a 50-50 split. And so then it goes too far apart. Although I almost never use that as well. There's a very rare case where I need two different things that I'm comparing very directly. But if I need to move between stuff, I more use global hotkeys to like go to the terminal, which I use full screen, or go to the web browser, which I use mostly full screen just I don't know why I don't go full screen on that. That's sort of a weird thing about my workflow. And then I do have Slack off to the side. So I'll typically have my laptop open next to the large monitor that I'm connected to and Slack's over there. And so it's sort of still within my peripheral view, but out of the way. It's not part of the core thing that I'm doing, which is either writing code or looking at the browser where I've made something in the browser. Hmm. So I'm of the opinion that I don't think I care (laughs) At least not strongly. I do kind of like them. I do like that I have all the real estate that if I wanted to bring up three, like I can almost have like three different full desktop views. That's not the right word. Three full-size windows? Yeah, three full-size. Well, not full screen. Yeah. But I can have like three full-size windows. And so if I wanted code in one, maybe GitHub in one, and if I need docs or something in a third place, it's true that I'm fooling myself if I think I can look at that all at once, but it's still there lined up for me. But I think I like them because of pairing. I don't I don't think I actually care for the other stuff. I think it's the pairing part that I enjoy that we have this nice big monitor. We can both pull up to the table and have some real estate on the monitor. But I do find that I'm constantly shifting the screens around to still be in the middle between both of us so we can see what's happening. Hmm. I hadn't thought about it in the pairing context and that is an interesting detail. But yeah, the fact that you're actually moving windows on it and then maybe almost unsells me on that. But that, that's an interesting point of view. And I do like pairing, that's for certain. It is funny, though. I go to the client's office and there are three desks with well, two of them have these giant curved monitors. And then the third one has this 
very small. I want to say it's like a 24-inch monitor or something, which compared to almost everything else we're using is 27 or 30 or something like that. And I specifically picked the tiny monitor because I'm like, I don't, uh, no, I don't like it. But I get that I'm weird. Well, at least they have they have that option for you. You can mm. choose that one. And then you can leave the large screen curved monitors to me. Yeah, thankfully, it's always open when I get there, the one that I prefer, because no one else agrees with me on this, apparently. I'm going to start showing up before you do, so I can take the tinier monitor and then leave you with the, the, the one you hate. <laughs> it's fair. I mean, we should get out of our comfort zones. We should try new things. And I might be grumpy, but <laughs> I can try it. And play pranks on your on your coworkers. That's that's the whole thing. Indeed. You divulge secrets to me, and then I use them against you. That's, that's oof, you've <laughs> taught me now. <laughs> My behavior will change accordingly. <laughs> but yeah, apparently giant monitors are what's up with me. So what's uh, what's up in your world? So I've been pretty deep in the weeds with a particular task, and while the domain details aren't terribly interesting or easy to convey, I have been really enjoying working with Greg Fisher. He's one of the other Thoughtbot developers here, and we've been pairing for this whole week and then the week before that working on this task because it's it has enough layers to it that we constantly need someone who has a better understanding of the technical details to constantly consider like oh well did we think about this and what happens when this happens and what about this use case and then we have someone else that's in the seat of okay let's make a comment for that but then let's stay focused on the one thing that we can write code for and then we'll come back to that so we have one person who is managing concerns and bringing that up because they have more domain knowledge, which has been Greg because he's been spending more time on this particular task than I have. And he's done a heroic job of like working with the client and bringing that team together to then ask a lot of questions to figure out how to approach this particular problem. It's one of those interesting areas where I think we've probably been talking about how to fix this or how to address this new task for a couple weeks now, but we haven't written any code. It's been all at the conversation level. And now that we've written code for it, I think we had, we changed like five files. So it wasn't a very large code change, but I think that was good. Like uh, I think we assessed the world that we were in, that domain space, figured out what logic already exists and how to connect in with that existing logic. So then that mitigates some of the other concerns where if we were to replicate any of that information somewhere else or some of those services, and so we've plugged our code in and we feel better about it because we had those previous weeks to gain context and to understand what all is happening. So it's been an interesting week. It's been it's been great. Thank goodness for pairing to sort of like keep us on task. Yeah, it's been interesting. I've been at least at the ThoughtBot office. I sit next to the team of you while you're pairing. And it has been very interesting watching the pair and watching sort of the balance that's existed and you're coming in with a little less of the domain knowledge, but that's actually been very beneficial because you keep pulling it back up and saying like, right, but what what is the user going to see? What What is the end product that we're trying to produce from this? And like you said, Greg is then at the, you've sort of got these two extremes that you need to balance and the pair of you is the only way to get that because one person can't keep both of those things in their head at the same time. Yes, totally. Yeah, Greg's been the one that's come to the table with a lot of the technical details and understands all the different classes, modules, everything that's into play, the different services and how that data is being transformed essentially. And then as you'd mentioned, I'm coming in and I'm like, but how do we test this from the user's perspective to know that we've solved a pain point for them to drive it back up to that higher level? And I think with both of us together, we've made great progress. And it's just nice to always have a buddy when you're in the thick of things like that, where yeah, it's tough to have all that context. I know Greg, particularly as he's been just thinking through all of the edge cases and trying to figure it out, I've also seen 
a little bit of frustration in the like just the complexity of the thing that he's working on. And it's one of those situations where having a partner and having someone even just to commiserate with briefly and then together to like sort of march into it in a small way. It's, it's been almost a perfect case study in both pairing and then, like you said, the extended period of thinking, evaluating different approaches because this feature, unfortunately, sort of touches every part of the code base. It's deep within the domain model and it hits at different points in the life cycle of data flowing through the system. And so it warranted the sort of careful, there were actually a few different approaches that had been entertained and then set aside for various reasons. And then finally, we're, we're getting to one. But it's been very interesting to watch. I've just been off doing other uh, simpler things, and it's been fun. But it's been really great to watch the evolution of the feature and then particularly the pair of you two working on it. And it's been great to have both of us there where when I am coming in with less context, but as you mentioned, since he can see a lot of the edge cases and he has concerns for them, he has someone like me to say those out loud to. And then he has someone else say, that's great. Thank you for highlighting that concern. We can't address all of these at once just because that's too hard. So we can pick a common case and solve that one first. So that's an implementation that we ended up landing on because what we're working on now won't solve it for 100% of users. Instead, we picked the solution where it is going to address the concern for about 40, 50% of the users, and it's an easier task to tackle. So then we can still move forward with that. We can ship that. We can have some feedback, see how it's working, and then we can start handling the other 50% that gets a bit more gnarly. I think it's also a case where some of the approaches that were entertained and eventually set aside were solutions to the immediate problem, but didn't lay a good foundation for this sort of fundamental feature set moving forward. They would have been almost dead ends. And unfortunately, this code base, for various reasons, there are sort of contractual situations that have happened that have forced more rapid development on a feature than would have been desirable. And so there's little skeletons of dead ends left in a few places. And so we can all see those, and we're all very sensitive to that and making sure that we're not going to do the same thing for this, where we're like, we do need to solve the immediate situation. We need to, there's a particular client or customer that needs a solution by a date. How can we fulfill that, but not back ourselves into a corner? Right. That's that's always such a, a difficult balancing act. Yeah, I think that's part of the reason that um, Greg and also Brian Tengren have spent a good bit of time consulting with the team and figuring out the best approach. Because for what you said, like we want to solve it for this kind of soft deadline that we have, but still an important deadline where we want to release the the feature for the clients. But then also we want to implement something that once we're done and that's been released, that we can still continue to build on that. So it'll be like a, a solid, sustainable approach that we would like to move forward with. It's been a lot of fun. I think we're getting close to the end now where we'll have the solution for a good number of the users, and then we'll come back and reassess. So kind of the next stage is we need to figure out what information we're reporting on, because that's one of the hard things. So we have a lot of inconsistent data coming in. So now we need a good way to look at all the use cases we're not handling so we can start to identify patterns to then figure out all the places where we're now missing some information that we want to capture from this data that just comes in in various forms. That is an interesting summary of, I don't know, pairing and features and sort of all of the little complexities that sneak in. So yeah, like I said, it was fun to sort of watch this from the sidelines. But to change gears a little bit, as we've been doing over a number of the previous episodes, some kind listeners have been sending in questions. And we really, really appreciate when you folks do that. So just as a reminder, we really like questions. And you should send them in to hosts at bikeshed.fm. 
Uh, we're happy to talk about career, code, new languages, old languages, uh, really anything. So just send us a question and we will likely answer it in an upcoming episode. And in fact, we've started to get enough of these that we're going to do two in a row. Woohoo. Uh, That's exciting that we have so many. Yes. Thank you, kind listeners. So the first one comes from Sean Wang, a.k.a. Swix, S-W-Y-X is his Twitter handle. And his question is, I'm a JS dev, not a Rails dev. And so I figured I'd ask, what do you think makes Rails truly successful slash scale so well? A lot of the answers you typically get involve, quote, convention over configuration. But I feel like there's probably a deeper answer than that if you have more experience with it. would love to hear yours. Thanks, Sean. So, Steph, what do you think? What makes Rails scale so well? Yeah, fun question. I think it's worth highlighting what Sean had mentioned, why convention over configuration is a popular answer. And I totally understand why that's one of the first things that others would say, because it is nice. It means that I need to make less decisions when I'm building an initial application with Rails, but I still have that flexibility should I need to override a default to something that I need for my use case instead. Some of the other reasons uh, that I think has helped Rails be successful, I think the fact that it's open source has been huge for its success. The fact that it's open source means a lot of individuals can contribute. It's also great for I know how the internals of Rails are working if I need to go looking for a particular answer. While there's a lot of great documentation for Rails, I really like knowing that I can go look at the source myself and then confirm an answer from there. That may have also helped them in the beginning when they were first building the application, because documentation takes time to build up. So if you open source your code early on, then that can help others contribute to that documentation and build it up for others to use. I have a couple others, but do you want to jump in on why you think Rails is successful? Well, I think there are a handful of things. One is the ecosystem. There's just so much that has been done. And because Rails apps do tend to be quite similar to each other, you see solutions to the common problems that folks have. So background jobs, we've got it. Sending email and doing so in an, in a non-trivial way. So there's the ability to preview emails. That's a wonderful feature that is now just baked into Rails. Testing and testing infrastructure. So RSpec and Capybara are absolutely wonderful tools. And it has been a long time since I have fiddled with the test configuration within a Rails app. Whereas when I find myself working in JavaScript, like right now, I'm seeing a lot of applications in the React world transition from Emotion over to React Testing Library. And there's just sort of a, there are new libraries often, there's less of a consolidation of ideas. And, and Rails doesn't have perfect consolidation, but I think for our usage at ThoughtBot, we have just such a clear set of answers as to how to build a digital product using Rails. The other major facet that I would say is Rails is primarily a server-side technology, and it does incredibly well at that, but it it does stick to that. And I think that is a fundamentally simpler way to build an application, Mm. at a minimum, the first version of the application. But also, I think it's a perfectly viable long-term solution for a large category of apps. We don't need to go to the heavy client-side, React, Vue, et cetera. If we're able to do it all server-side, it is I think just like fundamentally simpler. When you have a client side and a server side, you have two different pieces that are communicating back and forth and there's state over time, but stateless web requests, you know, getting that in, responding is just a simpler model. And so being able to use that for an extended period of time lets us be extremely effective for a certain category of applications. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but that's a that's a great example as well. The fact that you can start your application and you can handle 
your HTML, all of your rendering within one application. But then if you wanted to bring in something for more client-side management, if you wanted to bring in React or Elm, then you can shift to having just the API interface. Yeah, I like that. That's a, that's a great example. Unfortunately, I will say I don't think Rails does an amazing job at being an API. Hmm. Uh, in particular, many of the projects that I've worked on or many of the folks that I talked to are like, yeah, I, I built my own JSON serialization framework or library. The core answers within the Rails world, there's active model serializers, but that's, I think, unmaintained at this point or sort of hit a rough dead end in their development. And then there's Rabble and JBuilder, and there's like so many different answers to what should be a trivial aspect of the application. And so that is a, something that I do feel is unfortunate and not necessarily perfectly solved problem, mm. but not completely unsolved. Like I've definitely built Rails APIs plenty of times and they work, <laughs> but I wish that that were actually a little more rounded out in the way that the rest of it is. A little more clear as to like, you would always reach for this particular approach each way mm-hmm. versus right now it still feels a little fuzzy. Yeah. To continue on that theme, I think some of the other reasons that Rails has been successful is it's built on Ruby. And Ruby is really primed for developer happiness, which is such a great marketing slogan on their part. But it it does a nice job of being concise and I think friendlier for people that are ramping up and then also those that really enjoy the styles of using Ruby and then solves a lot of the common problems. So I think that's one of the reasons that's going to make like a framework successful is does it bring joy to people that are using it? Are we're going to gravitate to anything that helps our job be happier and easier? I definitely agree with the Ruby specific point. I have never been as happy with code that I've written in another language as I have with Ruby, like the class structure and just the way that I build and decouple code feels right. There's both an aesthetic, but also a, a sort of organizational or structural aspect that I just really like the the syntax or the lack thereof, frankly, that Ruby provides me in the way that I can express myself in code and then come back to that code and look at it and be like, oh, I know what that says. I know what that does versus basically any other language I've worked with. I just feel like there's more noise. I can never take a working piece of code and refactor or massage it to be as good a representation of the the words I would say to another human to describe it, which is basically my litmus test all the time for how well organized or factored is this code. I can't remember where I saw it, but I read somewhere where Matt's was talking to someone about Ruby and I think being interviewed about some of the designs and Matt's referred to Ruby as being executable pseudocode. And I thought that was a fun description of the language because that feels true. Like a lot of the things that I want to say, I could write in English and then a lot of that will still map over to Just put some underscores in and then suddenly it's, it's yeah. real Ruby. Add underscores, dot RB, good to go. <laughs> I actually yesterday was pseudocoding and I think I did like five different lines of pseudocode and two of the lines were unchanged when I actually turned it into real code. And I did have the moment of like, huh, that's fun. I like that. Do you have a moment where you're like, thanks, Ruby team? (laughs) I didn't, but I should have. (laughs) Add a moment of thanks. (laughs) So I think one of the other reasons that I like, or I think Rails is doing well, is the code quality that they have in Rails. When I was first learning to use Ruby on Rails, I would go to the Rails documentation a lot of times to see how they would implement a feature or a particular task. And that's meant a lot to me because I know that while I'm working on the features that are specific to my application, there are other kind, wonderful people that are working to improve the code quality and the features that are in Rails. So I think that's one of the, the other reasons that I would add to that list. I am curious, though, because I realize that if I'm starting a new project, if I'm not going out of my way to learn something that's still newish to me, like if I'm working on leveling up with Elm or React or a different technology, I do still reach for Rails. 
Is that true for you? Yes. I'll be honest. I've, I've kind of been searching for something that isn't Rails because at the end of the day, I, I really like types. And so Ruby, in theory, will get types in version 3.0, but there will be a gradual layer. And I've really enjoyed working in typed languages. I've really enjoyed GraphQL. And although it's perfectly workable in Ruby and Rails, I think you miss out on some of the potential benefits, particularly with a type system. Again, maybe I just like types and that's the end story. But I've yet to find anything that can offset all of those other things that we just described. Mm. And so for me, Ruby and Rails are absolutely still my go-to for any side projects, personal projects, or really if I'm starting an application here at ThoughtBot, that's going to be the default unless there's a strong reason to push us away from it. It'll be interesting to see if that stays true for many years longer or or what, but for now, that, that is definitely true for me. Yeah, I was just curious because I thought that was true. But I know partially for me, it's just because I, I'm a bit biased where I learned to program with Rails. So it feels natural to reach for that. But if I had started with Python or if I started with a different web framework or a different language, if that would still be true. So I don't know. But for now, I'm still really happy with it. I haven't felt the, the need to move on. So that still makes it very successful in my eyes where I still get a lot of joy and productivity from the, the framework. Well, hopefully, Sean, that provides you a little bit more context uh, and some light as to why we still love Rails to this day. But as I said, we do have two questions. So Steph, do you want to lead us into the second one? I'd love to. So our next question comes from our very own Tom Obarski, and it's about new project nerves. So the question from Tom is, do y'all still get nervous before a new project, worried that you won't know the space or the domain or some language features beforehand, nervous about interacting with new people or a possibly unpleasant client work culture environment, or are you at the point where you feel confident enough in both your people and programming skills and do enough research and vetting beforehand that you can learn on the fly and roll with the punches? Oh, I'm glad you, you're going first. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is a, a lot this in that lot. question, and it wonderfully crosses the technical and personal boundary that I think is sort of the core of our actual work. Definitely still have new project nerves, and I'm pretty sure I always will, and I almost kind of hope that I always do. I don't want to get numb to this thing because the work that we do is purposefully somewhat challenging. We're coming into organizations to try and help them, most often at sort of an inflection point for them, at a point that they're struggling either technically or process-wise or something. And so there's something that we have to help with. And it's not always clear, or it may be that you know people are pointing at one thing, but it's actually something else. And so there's definitely always some nerves. To answer some of the more specific parts of that, do I worry about not knowing the technical facets as much? I think we try really hard to pair folks with projects that they have experience in. That's not always the case. I've definitely had to learn on the job plenty of times, but I've become more and more okay with that facet, I would say, over time, because the longer I do this, the more I see that code is a lot the same across different languages and frameworks, and I've gotten better at learning, so I can do that more quickly, use existing knowledge to try and make analogies and things like that and work ideally with folks who do know a language or a framework. But at the end of the day, the hard part and the thing that I think we as ThoughtBotters bring into a situation is it's not so much about the code, but it's about the conversations and getting real pixels in front of users and then mapping that back into the code. And that skill set is the same everywhere. And so I know that I've got that foundation and I lean into that all the harder at the beginning of a project. And then if I need to ramp up on technical competency, I ideally can pair with someone who can take the ideas and put them into the code, but I can help with the mapping of, well, this human described a workflow. 
Now, how do we do as little coding as possible to get that into the app? So that's a first bit of an answer, but I want to get your thoughts before I keep going for too long. Yeah, I feel similar with a, a small twist to that. I also feel that I can communicate with those that I'm working with to understand like what it is that we want to achieve and ask questions so I have a clear picture of, of how to move forward. And then when it moves into the, okay, understand what we want to do for the user, what goals we're looking to achieve, what are the technical details, how does this look in code, that area, I'm still working on getting to your level. My capabilities of learning have certainly improved, especially since being at ThoughtBot and changing projects every four to five months. But I'd say I'm still working on getting to a point where I still feel fairly comfortable with, I'm like, I don't know this language, I don't know this framework, but I'm confident I can ramp up. I still know that I can, but I will still be very nervous about it and want to find someone else in the the ThoughtBot company to see if anyone else has experience so I know I can lean on them or ask them to help review my pull request. I don't think there's ever been a time where I've gone onto a project and been at, let's say, zero or completely unfamiliar with the technology and had to ramp up on my own. Most often, if I'm ramping into a new technology, it's because we're coming into an existing team that has an existing app in frameworks or languages that I may not be familiar with. And so there's almost always someone on their side who has more technical knowledge. And so I'm able to work with that. If I were just starting from zero and on my own, that actually would be very intimidating because there are are paradigms and there are idioms and there are all those things that are subtly different between languages. And so whatever knowledge I have in Rails does not necessarily map to any other framework that I'm going to. And I often will see folks who have coded a Rails app as if it was C or as if it was Java or anything else, and it shows through. And I think they are less effective and less familiar to folks who are doing Rails. And so I definitely have a fear of being that person if I come into a new framework. So if I was truly on my own, that would be much more unnerving. But I do have a strategy is too strong of a word. I go very wide when I first start learning a new technology. I just try and find anything I can to read. I watch YouTube videos. I start following people on Twitter. And my goal isn't even necessarily to find like the correct answer. I want to get a lot of voices first and then start to narrow down. As I see things that seem common across two different people, then I might start to look to them. If I if I start to think that's true, then I'll lean more towards what they're saying. And so it's this game of going very wide and then narrowing back down, almost like a design sprint, interestingly, which I've never done, but I've heard great things. Oh, that's a fun comparison. Mm. to a des- How's it like a design sprint again? Diverge and converge. So the oh, first yes. two days of the design sprint are go wide, gather everything you can that might be relevant, and then start to winnow it down and decide what's relevant and what do we want to carry forward. And so I do the same thing when I'm learning new languages or frameworks or whatnot. Oh, that's fun. You know, I hadn't thought about this. This is a little off topic, but I did a similar thing when I was joining the Bike Shed, and I've never hosted a podcast before. And so I went wide trying to understand, okay, what other technical podcasts exist out there? What can I listen to? Who can I glean insights from? What makes a good podcast? What do people like about the Bike Shed? And then I've started to converge a bit on some of the resources that I found that I find myself going back to more often. One of the approaches that I've seen used here at ThoughtBot for starting a new project is I was starting a Scala project, and a number of us here didn't have experience with Scala, but one or two of us did. So our way of onboarding to that project is we communicated with the client that we were onboarding someone new, that we were either going to, correct me if I'm wrong, but we were going to not bill for their first week or it was going to be a reduced rate while that person then paired with someone who had more experience in that language and that particular domain. And then after the first week or two, so you had this nice 
onboarding ramp to get to learn something without the full stress of like, oh, gosh, like they're paying a lot of money for my time and I'm still figuring out what I'm doing. I really liked that strategy. I don't know if that's something that we're always able to do, but that was one particular way that I really enjoyed getting started. I think that varies project to project, but ideally where we do find ourselves in situations where we have to ramp into new technologies, that's the approach. And definitely stress alleviating for the folks that are joining a project and want to be able to deliver early, but not necessarily able to hit the ground running at minute zero. So, And as for nerves for a new project, I certainly still get them. I still get the butterflies and the the anxiousness before it, but I'm like you. I would be sad if that went away. I described it to a friend kind of jokingly that it's a lot of like fear and joy and fear and joy. So it's a bit of a roller coaster, which is a little extreme, but still true. Like I, I still have those moments where I'm very nervous and I'm still figuring out what's going to happen next, but that's part of what I seem to really enjoy. I like that feeling of I don't know what I'm doing, but I have faith that I can figure this out. And I'm working with really great great people who will help me figure it out. I think that's the other big part. If I were doing this with less friendly, supportive folks, then it would be far less fun. Indeed. Actually, to continue on, there's one last facet of Tom's question here, which is around, do you ever worry that you're going to have negative interactions or that people are going to be unpleasant or, or not receptive? And that is definitely something that I worry about, but thankfully has, except for very few rare circumstances, that's not really been the case. Which I'll be honest, I'm kind of surprised because in a lot of cases we're coming in, we're sort of brought in to help, but not necessarily brought in by the team that we're working with. We're brought in by VP of engineering or CTO or CEO. And I could see the case where folks would be a little bit resistant to that. Like, who who do you think you are coming in telling us not to write let in our R spec? Please. <laughs> That's folks, a great example. <laughs> don't write let in your R spec. <laughs> but I think one of the things that I've worked really hard on over the years is to try and be as friendly and as viewed as much as a partnership as opposed to anything else. We're not working for clients. We're working with clients. We're not there to change things or to break things. We're there to help. And our success only comes from their success. And I can't think of any specifics as to what I do, but that's sort of the mindset that I'm coming from. And I, like I said, because I've not had terribly many negative experiences, I'm hoping that it's working. But And what are your thoughts around that aspect of this question? Well, to follow up on yours as an outsider perspective, when I've watched you work with clients, a lot of times I've noticed, and not just you, but other people that I thought about as well, is a lot of those, that initial starting up with a project is a lot of fact finding and questions and it's understanding how that team already works, what strains, what pressures they're facing. So it's a lot of empathy in the beginning. And I think most teams appreciate that we're coming in first to understand what are they trying to do? What are they struggling? with. And then we're looking for a way to fit in and then to also suggest, well, this is what we've seen work and bring that up. But it's never like a you should do this or you should do that. It's more we're bringing suggestions to the table based on what we've seen being new to the, the group. So when I first started ThoughtBot, I was terrified because I hadn't done consulting before. I'd worked at product companies and I was super nervous that I was going to show up at a client and that they were going to be terribly disappointed that I wasn't this all-knowing consultant that they expected to have all the answers. And I was worried that other developers were going to ask me questions and I wouldn't know the answer. And they'd be like, but I, I thought you were a ThoughtBot developer. You're supposed to know these things. So I went in very nervous with that. 
idea. And then quickly that was alleviated when I realized working with these other teams and developers is they're looking for someone that's competent, someone that's kind, that can help them understand the problem and work through the problem. They don't expect me to know it all. They do expect me to dive in and help and contribute. But that has been a huge relief for me to realize that I am joining a team just as if that company had hired me as a developer. Like they're not expecting me to come and know everything from day one, but instead I'm going to grow with that team and then help them where I can. My startup thought bot was identical. Were you terrified too? Oh, absolutely. But the sort of voice in my head these days is I don't have any answers, but I have a process as to how to find answers. I mean, I do have some answers, I guess, and you probably have a few too, but... Just just a few. Yeah, I think an interesting thing is some folks may hear this conversation and think of it in the light of, well, you're consultants, and so that's fine and all, but I work at a product company. But I, the longer I do this, the more I think that consulting is just like a focus down window of the same sort of skills and approach that would work equally well within a product company or if you're going to be there for multiple years. Like You always have new people joining your team. When you're a new person joining a team, I think this sort of mindset can be helpful. So yeah, I don't think this is just a consulting thing either, because I think the the question was sort of framed in that. But I think anytime someone's joining a new company or moving teams within a company or starting a new project or a new initiative or building out the new architecture and rebuilding the whole thing, like any of that, all of these sort of questions, I think, apply. Yeah. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, definitely. That That was a great question. Thanks, Tom. And thanks for all that you do for the podcast. You're great. You are great. Awesome. Well, that was two great questions. Thank you so much to Sean and to Tom for sending them in. And again, folks, please keep sending them in. We love these questions. Host at Bikeshed.fm or Steph or I on Twitter. Show notes for this episode can be found at Bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore Bikeshed or reach me at Chris Toomey on Twitter. Or me at S. Vicari. Or host at Bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.